Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. And I'm really delighted to introduce this pre-recorded private conversation with Martine Prechtel. It's the third in a series of hopefully four interviews with Martine. The first two were about his previous books. Uh, the most recent one before this one was about the first installment of his trilogy, Stories of His Horses. And that one was called The Mare and the Mouse you want to listen to that one. This one is about the second book in that installment, which is titled The Wild Rose, Stories of My Horses, Volume 2. These are true life stories, magical, incredible stories about his experiences living with, raising, and going on adventures with these horses, these, uh, these Pueblo, Pueblo Mesta horses, these native horses uh, which were brought to New Mexico by, by the Spanish originally and indigenized by, by the Pueblo people of, of New Mexico. I'll tell you a little about Martin, and then I'll let you listen to our wonderful conversation. He's such an incredible, eloquent storyteller with an amazing sense of humor and uh, a vigor for life that I'm delighted by every time we speak. So Martine is an artist, a writer, a musician, a storyteller, a teacher, and a healer. As an avid student of indigenous eloquence, innovative language, and thought, Martine is a writer, artist, and teacher who through his work, both written and spoken, hopes to promote the subtlety, irony, and pre-modern vitality hidden in any living language. A half-blood Native American with a Pueblo Indian upbringing, he left New Mexico to live in the village of Santiago Atitlan, Guatemala, eventually becoming a full member of the Zutujil Mayan community there. For many years, he served as a principal in that body of village leaders responsible for piloting the young people through the meanings of their ancient stories in the rituals of adult rites of passage. Once again residing in his beloved New Mexico, Prechtel teaches at his international school, Bolad's Kitchen. Through an immersion into the world's lost seeds and sacred farming, forgotten music, magical architecture, ancient textile making, metalsmithing, 
the making and using of tools, musical instruments, and food, and the deeper meanings of the origins of all these things in the older stories and ancient texts, and by teaching through the traditional use of riddles, Brechtel hopes to inspire people of every mind and way to regrow and revitalize real culture and to find their own sense of place in the sacredness of a newly found daily existence in love with the natural world. Prechtel lives with his family in their native Mesta Horses in northern New Mexico. So listener, I, I uh, welcome you into this really wonderful uh, continuation of my conversation with Martin Prechtel for Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. And his website is floweringmountain.com. Get ready for a great ride as we dive right into the conversation. Hey, hey there, Martin. Hello. How are you doing? Doing well. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm talking to you. You look like a microphone. <laughs> With a little purple light inside. <laughs> Hello. I thought I'd change my look a bit, you know. I'm really very modern, you know. <laughs> so how's things going down there in new mexico oh everything's uh like just like new mexico (laughs) it's uh was like really dry for a long time everybody said yeah right martin it's always dry in new mexico no but i mean like really dry (laughs) you know like you look at a rock the wrong way it cracks open turns to dust (laughs) And then everything was on fire. 500,000 acres by our other ranch was burning. And almost burned it up too. But uh, just our little canyon was the only one didn't burn. It was just amazing. Then another one started right here by Los Alamos. And that went back the other way. And then another one was just north of us. It came within about eight miles. And it was coming down. We had 100 mile an hour wind. And then we had a fire right here where I'm sitting. About three feet away from the window, it started up and almost burnt down the school. But the guys came and everything was cool. They had to cut down a couple of my favorite tree. But then that was done. And then um, the winds got more and more and more and more and more. And it was like everybody was freaking out. One of my horses' uh, uh, belly caught on fire. <laughs> the hair, we got her moved on time. Fact, I'm writing a book. The next book is about her, actually. Thank God she made it and oh. her husband and the guy that was in the fire in that one book and this one the what well, rose he was there too so, but he's used to that fire shit so you know he came out all right but <laughs> then oh. it started raining i i called the school off you know i was doing a a, a kind of a correspondence class. i said look i got a, all the natives in the in our part of the world here I went into a rain retreat they have a big custom of that was pueblo indian so i did too and my guys start to rain and it rained for the last two and a half weeks. Today's like the first day. It hasn't rained. I came to a couple of thunderstorms yesterday. And so it got all wet and everything's all flowers and it's all green and the river's running again. And it's just like you they never known, you know. So that's how we are down here. Wow. It sounds like, uh, I mean, so you guys did this rain retreat to call, well, we in, did to call every, in the rain? Well, every village... In New Mexico, there's a lot of natives that are really didn't go through the American exposure. You know, they were with Spaniards. And then when the Americans came, they just sort of slide into their thing. So they were able to keep a lot of their really, really, really old pre-European customs. And I grew up in a place like that. 
And uh, so in the summertime, around the uh, summer solstice, they have these societies that go into rain retreats. And uh, different individuals will go in and uh, you, you have to, there's a lot to it. I mean, you bring in spring water from all these different places because the rain beings, they live inside um, various and sundry dimensions and, and kind of concentric layers, you might say, back in time until you get into the oceans. It's kind of amazing to think of. But anyway, so they have all this ritual and we have all this ritual that they do. But I've been, you know, not a member, a part of those tribal units myself, uh, directly speaking, but I do have my own sacred house and my own stuff. So I just um, have been in the years past just doing the, the oh, just the regular stuff that we do. But this year we had to go and do the real heavy fasting and bringing all the spring water, all the songs and going through and going every day, every day, every day, every day. And the rain, they came back, so that's wonderful. And so we're hoping that it will continue on and and uh, everybody's uh, fields are growing, my corn's growing, everything's growing, and the horses are doing good. The wild animals, unfortunately, you know, for all the burns, there's so many displaced bears and elks and everything, and all kinds of animals coming around. So we're feeding a lot of beings over here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's cool you know, in a way. You I feed the animals. bears, do you? Well, you don't matter. They get fed, you know. I mean, it's not like you feed them, you know, they come and eat, you know. <laughs> you don't have to worry too much about feeding them. You know, they, they just kind of come and eat, and we're just hoping they don't eat. Well, we had a raid last night. Some, I think it was a bobcat, hit my little girl's quails. She raises quails. And then the, on Monday, something hit her ducks. So we're kind of down on birds right now. My chickens oh. made it, and my turkeys, wild turkeys are all fine, but... I think it's a bobcat and decided he's going to, you know, get stock up. And so he nailed her quails pretty good. But we found a few of them alive and put them back in. But they're so crafty, you know, they didn't have to open all the little latches and stuff. And stuff. Yeah, no, it's not, we, we don't actually feed them, but we feed them spiritually, you know, at the shrines mm -hmm. up in the hills. But they, they come eat anyway, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> you just have to go for it, you know. Yeah. It's figured, you know, everybody's got to make a living, you know, so. That's way it is. So we're doing good. You know? Everyone's good. Kids are healthy. But getting tall, making a lot of music around here too. So. Oh, beautiful. Writing a lot uh, of books. <laughs> you're writing a lot of books? You're writing, writing books all the time. You know, my head's always writing books. I'm trying to write the third one in the sequel, and I got another book that's about something else totally that I'm working on as well. So just hammering away, keeping all these people that type for me, you know slobbering and working all hours of the night poor things you know but <laughs> my typist is in london you know and she's such a great lady she's been typing for years for me but you know i send her i don't know you've probably never seen what my handwriting looks like but yeah it's, it's very difficult to distinguish between a lot of worm tracks after a rain you know and she just does it you know she gets it so I wanted to ask you about your writing process. Like, you, so you obviously, you, it sounds like you write by hand. How well, do you, yeah, how do you approach hands. it? Yeah. Oh, I'm very scared of it. I, I, you know, I come in with a big sword and say, are you going to bite me or not? It's hard to approach. You know, my writing is really rough. That's this joke. I have a lot, <laughs> lot, a lot of ink. And, well, you know, do a lot of spiritual stuff too. You know? I mean, when they're making a lot of prayer, because, you know, like where I come from, writing is kind of, we look at, when I was young, we looked askance at it, you know, none of the natives thought much of writing. It was kind of like a scary thing because 
pretty much everybody that ever wrote that came to visit them were writing edicts and stealing land and <laughs> you know sending people to prison with pieces of paper and so writing was like a way of freezing things and like photography it was all it was banned on the reservation where i lived you couldn't you weren't allowed to write i mean you could write like a letter or something but you couldn't write things down you couldn't sketch and you couldn't uh, record like we're doing and you couldn't uh, photograph and it's still the case actually where i grew up which is only about Oh, 60 miles south of where I'm sitting at this moment. And they had their reasons for that. And they were able to keep their cultural ways alive. So writing was like in my family. I mean, my father and mother, you know, they weren't from New Mexico. They were from other parts of the country in Canada as well. And um, they're very literate. And so I read, you know, and I was, and my father wanted to be a writer and he did write some things, but unfortunately died before anything came out. But another story and so I became very literate but I, I when I left the reservation the last thing on my mind was writing so when I finally came to writing as a, a way of uh, as an art form it was way after I'd been to Guatemala and after I'd come back and they want everybody wanted me to write all these memoirs you know this they want because Carlos Castaneda was was dying or dead I can't remember I called him he called me up once and and then he died like a week later or something and oh. my publisher said at that time was Jeremy Tarcher you know and he said look I want you to write all this stuff that you know because we've heard your lectures and blah 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 we've been to these conferences with Robert Bly and he's out there talking about we got to get this all down on paper and I said well do we really <laughs> you know <laughs> and I we don't really have to do that do we Oh, no, man, this is very important stuff, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, modern culture has to own everything and get it and, you know, put it in the fridge and forget about it. So I didn't do anything about it, but um, I realized at one point, you know, that so many things that were was being compromised back in Guatemala, I mean, it was just, it was just dying like, like poisoned fish, you know, I mean... And so I decided I would write things down if it would keep, if it would be like a seed that would then maybe re-sprout some of that goodness later on if it was possible. So these characters said, okay, we'll give you a book contract. And I said, okay, well, I don't even know anything about that, but you have to get an agent. I said, agent, what do I need an agent for? I don't need an agent. Just give me a book contract. I'm going to do it. And it's, you know, I, and all of a sudden I was in the rigmarole, but um, they sent me a ghostwriter, you know, <laughs> and I said, who are you? <laughs> the very nice lady shows up at my place, you know, I said, oh, I've written all these books, which I won't go in the air to tell everybody because then they're not supposed to know that this guy and that guy and this lady never didn't write their books, you know, but these, you know, nice little people who that's their gig, you know, is to get $3,000 and write so-and-so's book. And I said, well, let me tell you, ma'am, I tell you what, you go ahead and write whatever you think you want to write, but I'm going to reject it all. And I'm just going to write my own book. He said, but you don't know how to write. I said, but I'll learn. You know, I'm like, I'm very, very interesting kind of creative human being. I mean, I make music, man, you know, and I can um, do all sorts of things. I know how to silversmith. I know how to paint paintings. And I'm relatively well-known doing these things. And I think I, I, I could, you know, probably figure out a style. And they, oh, they blew their tops, you know, because I already had a contract. But then finally they said, uh, this lady wrote this terrible, uh, you know, what they would do is they want me to do like we're doing now, we record and then they just write this stuff down and then they jargon it up into these little short sentences, garbage. And 
And then the shoe would present it to me and I said, oh, this has really got no vocabulary in it whatsoever. It represents absolutely nothing of what I have to say. Well, we don't really care about what you say. All we want is the details. You know, and I said, well, the details. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a book, which is now known as Secrets of Talking Jaguar, which was with another book called um, Long Life, Honey, and the Heart was one tome. It was about... <laughs> Yeah, kid you not, about 1,800 pages long. Oh. I had a wonderful typist named Thomas Smith, who's still around. He was Robert Bly's typist, and he could read my handwriting, man. This guy would type it all out. And this was like, he was doing it on a typewriter, man, you know, not like on a computer. And so I presented this thing on the deadline of my <laughs> contract in New York City. I actually went there in the airplane and plopped it down to Irene Prokop's, uh, the editor's desk. And they just about fainted. They said, you can't publish this. This is like 9,000 times bigger than people will read. So you ask for what my what happened. This is what happened. And boom. <laughs> and they read it and they said, oh, they got really mad. And then all of this ch political ch chicanery happened. This, that, and the other, this, that, and the other. And of course, I never got paid for any of those books. They came out and they uh, said, okay, we'll divide it into two books. And we'll put out the first one, Secrets of Talking Jaguar. And then all the anti-American, heavy political stuff will be in the second one. So they put that out for about six weeks, remaindered it, and then threw it in the trash bin. And so I bought that one back. And this guy at, uh, what's it called? You know, North Atlantic Press, who at that time, he's no longer there, but he's the one founded it, was Richard Grossinger. He wanted so bad to be my publisher. So I said, let's do that. You know? So you put these books out that I've written, and keep them, promise me to keep them on the shelf, and I'll keep making books for you. So that's what we did. And so when all that stuff came out, you know, I was just writing away and doing my paintings on the cover, and people were digging it, and the original publishers were a little chagrined, you know, so they've still kept the original one on, on their books, you know, it's still being print, published and printed. But, you know, it was just a crazy thing. So for me to actually start writing... You, you asked a simple question, of giving a very not simple answer, but this is what happened. I, I would go and I would write, you know, all of these characters who I used to wander around doing uh, conferences, man conferences, and this, that, and the other one. I was just a rookie on the road, you know, <laughs> going around the world with these guys like their little dog, you know. And they would tell, oh, no, man, all you got to do is, you know, just get the the transcripts, you know, from one of these conferences because they record them all, you know, and just listen to it and just write it down. And so I actually did that one day and it was the most awful experience you ever had. It was so terrible. It had nothing to do with, it really did not get across because the, the spoken word is one thing. A written word, if you treat it that way, it does not convey the oral thing. So I realized that I will have to treat my, my writing like I treated my painting because you can't do any better than the holy in nature for what's in nature. I mean, you can't, you know, you're going to try to GMO a universe that's really idiotic. It's so beautiful, incredible the way it is. So you can't, imit you can imitate it, but you can't make it. So, but you can make your own thing, you see, out of who and what you are and what you feel. So I said, what I'm going to do is I'm paint my words, man. So I started uh, writing in a way that was very interesting because I write from the middle of whatever it is I feel like I'm going to say. As you can tell, I got a lot of it. <laughs> and so it starts writing, and I write to the forward, and I write to the back. 
In other words, I write forward in time and I write backwards in time, practically simultaneously. And it keeps growing out of there just like a mushroom coming out of the ground. And then I ditched the whole thing except one line, which is the last thing I wrote. And I make that the beginning of the book and I start writing forward and backward again. And I just kept doing this and kept doing this. And so I would just write, 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 write. I would get um, somebody to type for me. So that what I would do is I write everything by hand. The person would type it up and put it into something that was uh, quasi legible and, and imagining what it was I actually wrote there. And most of the time, these people are very good and they send it to me. And then I would, uh, I would make them double or triple space all that. And then I write in between and amplify it just like a wedge in a, in a log opening up each word, opening up each paragraph, opening up each idea and enlarging it. And, and as much deliciousness as I could manage and as much indigenous integrity as I could, can, could carry. And then that would grow itself into a book-sized organism. Then I would take that and I would mercilessly chop it. Chop, 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 chop. And then I would do the same thing all over again. And I do after two or three times, it gestated basically kind of a, like a baby. And then it would be born into a form. And then I would put the beginnings and the endings and divide into chapters and things like that. And slowly paint it and sculpt it into uh, something that was uh, what I figure had. I, what I was really looking for was to be able to have it so people of any place could get hold of this book at the time and read out loud. And what they read out loud would have the same timber, rhythm, deliciousness, and significant interconnectedness that people do have in village style of living and, and the way they do their own rap inside in the reservations and then in Central America as well. So whether I succeeded at that or didn't succeed at that, that's definitely the trail I was uh, hammering away at, you see. So when the audiobook things came out, I refused to do any of it because I want everyone to, I realized Western culture and, and modern culture and so-called civilized culture, you know, was based on writing. And people were becoming less and less capable of actually reading. So I wanted everybody to read what I read and then read it out loud to one another. And a lot of people did that, especially people like who were separated, you know, or really sick and couldn't be together, or people who were in prison and hadn't gotten out, or people far away, people who long for, they would read my books over phone, you know, and we get these marvelous letters from the most amazing people all around the world. And then when the COVID thing started up, because all my publishers, all, every single one of them, always wanted me to do audiobooks. And I just refused and refused and refused. But when the COVID thing started hitting and there were a lot of people I knew personally who actually didn't read that well and couldn't actually read. I mean, I got a letter the other day from a guy who's so beautiful, a sweet guy you know, from New York City who was uh, originally from, uh, I believe, uh, Slovenia. But he says, I finally got to read uh, The Unlikely Piece at Kuchimakik. It took me 10 and a half years, but I stuck to it. I never quit. It was so hard for me to read that language, but it's so beautiful. Now I'm starting over and maybe I'll understand it this time. You know, and so I'm going, oh no, the poor people, they don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So I realized that when I was talking or reading something from one of my books that I wrote, I was putting the inflections, I was putting in the phraseology, the wordology, the general timber of what I 
have as very importantly put in with the rhythm of the words it's not just the meaning it's the the way they jive the poetry of it and so i could put that in there that people could hear it and then my book sales went way up because they start buying it oh that's how it goes i didn't know that the sentence went like that you know oh oh cool oh that makes sense you know so I was like really funny because then people said, oh, you, this is your guide to how you read these damn things. And I said, exactly. So now you, you can hear my voice when you read one of my books and you can put yours in there and off we go. So I try as hard as possible. So in, to get the, the oral thing, you can't get the oral thing by writing the oral down into a page. You can get the oral thing by writing as an art form that when it is read out loud becomes an oral tradition. Or, or an oral approach and that's the irony of it because you can't get the oral from the oral the oral is in the oral and the people have lost the oral they think by listening to the tube you know and to their computers and the televisions and radios and stuff they're getting oral there's no oral in there that's still being run by the orthography of what people have um, been for the last few centuries been using in as written language so I decided to go the other way around and use the written language in order to reinstate what might be oral you know, storytelling, not from the point of view of fiction, but from the point of view of the way a person in the village would explain themselves. So then I get all these characters writing me or calling me up or telling me, well, that can't be because Indians can't think those thoughts. I said, give me a break, man. What do you mean Indians can't think those thoughts? They can think those thoughts. They th and here I am. I'm thinking those thoughts. <laughs> you say only white guys can think in abstraction. Well, we can't understand it. Well, that don't mean that it ain't worth understanding, dude. So give it a chance. Read. And so then I start giving instructions in my books. If you read like um, Disobedience of the Daughter of the Sun, it tells you how to read the book. You know, which is kind of a naughty thing to do, but what else are you going to do? <laughs> so, and it's not mean or anything, you know, it's just like read to as far as you can understand and then stop and go back and read up to that point again until you can get to the next sentence because every sentence matters. Well, I just want to be entertained. I said, so go read something that's entertaining. I don't write entertainment, you know, so I got these guys that want to make you know, movies out of my book, you know, Kenneth Graham, all these guys, I said, oh, man, I don't think so. I don't oh. think we want to do that yet. You know, that's not yeah. good. Yeah. So anyway, you asked me a simple question. It should have been a, a tiny little answer like the rest of the new age guys do. But you know what it is? <laughs> you get stuck with me, man. So I'm happy to be stuck with you, Martin. And and I just want to, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I want to, this is, this is something that is, I think, central in your, in your work and your teaching is that, you know, get it, this idea of getting straight to the point is is besides the point the whole everything you're saying is the point yeah. and, and the dance the dance is the point yeah well i mean getting to the point is generally just a people's anxiety depression mechanism because they're so scared that they're you know going to die before they understand what's happening or that they're you know not going to be able to have what they need in order to feel the esteem that a person wants but that's because there's no culture it's all a cultural avoidance system so getting a point and having this and having the manual so you know the answer well humans are not capable of knowing the bigness of what's there and so my thing is to try to allow people to trick themselves into seeing the gorgeous enormity of something even if they don't understand it 
but to dig the hell out to a degree that they want to live and continue to add to it in such a way that it doesn't destroy what we're surrounded by and given to naturally, you see. So, yeah, that's me and Moist Hammer. It doesn't matter on what front, whether it's writing or it's painting or it's music or lecturing or whatever. It's all pretty much the same thing I'm doing. But anyway, to follow up a little more, I started to actually treat uh, writing in that sense, not as, I never thought of myself, I still don't think of myself as a writer. And a lot of people are very unhappy with me because they say, well, what's it feel like to be a writer? I don't know. When I feel like when I'll tell you, you know, I don't feel like a writer. Yeah, I, I write horses. I serve Smith, man, I paint. I make music. I raise my children. I teach. I live in this New Mexico world of mine that I've always lived in. And being a writer is not an identity for me. So it's like people who buy a car, you know, and they have a red, you know, sort of Lexus or something. And that's like their identity, man. Well, I don't have an identity as a writer. And this is very irritating to people because they, they think that's like a really cool thing to be. Like you have a certain walk and you wear certain kind of clothes. <laughs> you look really serious in the computer. You know? <laughs> Got your ashtray over here and your bad kombucha on that side. You know? Oh, that guy's a writer for sure. Check it out. <laughs> they take a picture of an author photo, put it on the back. Looks like you're already embalmed. You know, the no man. I don't want to be a writer. I see them guys. Well, we get it, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't really, um, I didn't really do that. But I thought, uh, you know, when the best thing would be to treat the art of writing as something that gives life to something beyond myself. And if it doesn't, well, at least it's worth a try, you know. So I started to write in a way that has some some beauty of the actual doing of it. And so I never stopped writing by hand, which a lot of people go, wow, you know. I mean, they did, there was a, a time when, you know, there was a lot of pressure and deadlines and they said, I should, I do know how to type like in a typewriter. I had this typing teacher in high school was two and a half feet tall. Her name was Dora and she wore a little red suit. She was a dwarf. And she taught every, she was so beautiful, beautiful, tiny little woman. And she'd jump up on top of the desks with a big ruler. One, two, three, begin. <laughs> so everybody wanted to be in this little lady's class, you know, Dora Martinez. And uh, God bless her wherever she is. Uh, Cinder, I hope she's still alive. But anyway, so I did learn, you know, but just because kind of the sport of the thing, I didn't really learn for any other reason. So then they, they put me on a computer one time and I blew three of them up within two days. And so they said, man, your juju is too weird. You know, you can't use this damn machine. So you just stick with this pen, you know. So that's what I do. Um, and I got my own kind of writing. I mean, I, my, my script is like, my kids just laugh, you know, as they learn how to write so you can meet, everybody can read it. And it's just like, hmm, what is this? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I run through a lot of ink, man. I tell you, a lot of ink. You won't believe it. You won't believe it. It's really a lot. I want to tell the people that are going to be listening to this, that this is episode three in a series of interviews with Martin Prechtel. And the first one was on his book, rescuing the light quotes from the oral teachings of Martin Prechtel. The second one was on the mare and the mouse stories from, of my horses volume one. And today we're talking about the wild rose stories of my horses volume two. And I'm really hoping we're going to have a fourth interview where we talk about the third volume of this series. I will, uh, yeah. One of the things I, I tell people when I'm, uh, you know, leading up to this interview is I say, you know, Martin Prechtel, he's, 
in my mind, he's one of the best writers going. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. And it, so it's interesting I, 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 that you don't identify as a writer, but I get it. And I think <laughs> probably, you know, all those other things that you do and the fact that you don't identify as a writer, it frees you up to just really, you know, say what you want to say without too much pressure on yourself to think, oh, I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm only a writer. I got to live up to something. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, the thing is, uh, people with writing, I mean, writing is a strange thing. The actual event of writing things down is quite amazing. I mean, I teach a whole class on, on that. I mean, I make my class, you know, make pens out of the date palm thorns, you know, like they find like 5,000 BC and it and what's now Israel. And I'll teach them how to make the ingredients of different kinds of inks and parchment. And, you know, I mean, to copy down a book like Parsable in, you know, 1230, all this incredible way of writing, very slow, but very amazing. Oh, the deliciousness in the words. Nobody's going to mince what they're saying, you know. I mean, but the thing you will notice is that if you write, the Mayans have a word for writing, which basically is the same word is used for painting or smiling and when um their belief is is that it kills memory that you know people write things down so they can remember them or now they use, they use a computer but it actually makes it so you don't have to remember so i'm gonna write this down so i don't have to keep this in my head i can look at it later so the point is that when you write something down a lot of times if you don't treat it as an art form it actually kills memory instead of creates memory so i wanted to make writing so it didn't kill memory but created memory and so that meant that it had to be spoken again so when anything that was written down is as strangely as it seems i mean they're just a bunch of scribbles and people have agreed that this has this sound and that has this sound and this has that sound that has this sound you know it's like a stoplight I mean, why does everybody stop at a at a red light? You know, there's no reason for that for them to stop. It's because they agreed to it. You know? And an Indian lady asked me that once in Guatemala City. We were driving around. I said, "How come we stop?" Because she had never been to a city. You know, I said, "Well, see that thing up there? That's Semaforo, man. When it turns red, everybody stops." She says, "Why?" Because uh, they decide that's what they do. Let the other guys go by. Oh wow! And then pretty soon it turned in that place. It would turn yellow, and then it would turn green. And I said, "Now, why are we moving?" I said, "It's because it turned green." And you're like, just going for it? You don't just like go and do what you want? Well, actually, I do sometimes. But then this guy comes over and he stops you and gives you a ticket. Wow. Oh. So writing is the same way. You know, it's like everybody agreed this. You know, this don't have the sound of A and this don't have the sound of B. You just agree to it. So that kills language and it kills orthography unless when it's read out loud, you know, you start to learn from it again. And I mean, that's one of the greatest things about the old Jews, you know, the modern Jews, they, I don't know, but the old times with all their Midrash and their Talmudic stuff, everything couldn't be taken at what it was written. It had to be discussed. And then the discussions were written down and then they had to discuss the discussions ad infinitum. But, you know, there's something great about that. But I thought, uh, well, you know, it's not writing that's important. What's important is being able to remember how to be a human being. And you can't just get a sacred text and say, this is how you do it, because then you're going to end up making wars and fighting and killing each other over what that actually means. So in every generation, everything has to be relearned. So if it's treated as a seed, then yeah. So, but if, if a person who's writing is just writing in order to give somebody a jolt or to make a buck 
or to say, look at, I found out and you didn't know and blah, blah, then it's, it's not going anywhere. You know, it's just actually creating more amnesia. So I, uh, I've noticed that modern people have absolutely no memory capacity. I mean, I tried to teach classes and I teach what I teach in the morning and everybody goes home and says, what did he say? I can't remember a thing, you know? So then they write it down. They still can't remember a thing. I said, read it again and then read it out loud yourself to each other. Then you'll remember it. And that did seem to begin some sort of thing to create a memory possibility. So, you know, that's kind of why I say I don't identify as a writer because it's only a small part of a bigger thing, a bigger, as you call it, a process, you know, bigger, bigger thing, but not just for people. It's got to be for beyond the people, for times beyond their own, for the natural world, everything, you know. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this, these little horse books, I started writing them mostly because I love my horses so much and I hadn't written enough about them. And most of the people who follow me around or read my stuff don't really care that much about animals as much as I do. And so I said, well, I'm going to write a book where, you know, it's not about two guys and you know, ladies in bed and about all their personal problems. <laughs> Although there's a few of those in there. The horses have to put up. I'm going to write about horses, man. I'm going to write what happened, you know where I bucked on this and I went over here to get some eggs and ended up with a mare and blah, blah, blah. That's exactly what happened. So, and that's, um, but the language and the, what's being said, it's still, still, you know, it's still going on with the same stuff. There's some fools that bought those books thinking they're for little kids and they got into the middle of it trying to read it to their four-year-old going, uh-oh, this is about me. <laughs> um, now what am I going to do? <laughs> what did he say, Daddy? Well, well, uh, let me tell you. It's about a horse that bucked up the mailbox. You know? <laughs> Funny. You know, that, that reminds me of a quote in the book. And I just, I want to tell everybody, like, re read Martine's books, please. And this, this one, The Wild Rose, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that pretty much every line of this book is potent. With the power, I think there's the power of two processes in my estimation, correct me if I'm wrong, working simultaneously. And the first process is it's a learning process. It's the absorption of like a rich body of knowledge that you're sharing. Mm -hmm. And the True second, enough. yeah. And the second process is more subtle, but if you let it work on you, you gain that gift of unlearning, unlearning mm. all that stuff that keeps us cut off from the sacred magic of life on the earth well yeah we can only hope you know and then of course there's the integrity of uh the fact of people having lost so much of their indigenous origination there's a lot of things in there especially the wild rose chapter which is talking about the fact that it can still be there and it can still come back alive you know which is my biggest hope of all time it's not the fact to say, oh, you know, all these old time Indians or these people had this cool thing, this, that, and the other. It's that there's a magic that people, they don't even know what it is or where it is or what it's about. And they have not only lost it, but their friendship with it. And as you were talking about earlier, but the rain retreats and all that. Yeah, but there's somewhere where that seed kind of like a spiritual DNA, if you're given the right, uh, I don't know what right is the word, but uh, some sort of... Uh, friendly conditions is constantly starting trying always to reemerge. so that's uh, this is just another approach to that and see in all my other books up to now you know pretty much um except for maybe grief and praise you know the smell of random dust are you know 
mostly located in Central America, whereas this is right here in the United States, you know, and people are going, well, I didn't see any of that when I was growing up, Martin. I said, yeah, you weren't looking, baby, you know, <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> what do you mean you were there? Of course you were there, you just didn't see it. <laughs> you know, there's a beautiful quote and uh, that I wanted to share. It's, it's from chapter one. And I, I, and I just want to preamble by saying, these stories are so magnificent and I don't want to spoil any of the stories. So I'm going to try and kind of, you know, dance around the stories and just grab little pieces that'll still leave those stories to be discovered by people. Um, so there's this part where you, uh, you run in, you and your friend Vicente are out riding to a water spring and you oh, yeah. run into to Mr. Maestas. Maestas, yeah. Maestas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he challenges you for being on what used to be his land, but no longer is. And you treat him with a deep respect rather than arguing with him. Even yeah. though technically he's wrong and you're right. Well, we're all right, man. You know, I mean, the United States government said they owned it. It was BLM. You know, but, right. Yeah. And then there's these three sentences that you say that really move me. And I, I'd love to hear more about this from you. You write, um, it was all a normal New Mexico. How do you do? I grow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and then you say i'd grown up with a whole generation of beautiful heartbroken people whose nobility just needed you to recognize the legitimacy of their presence yeah i really wasn't any different right and still ate (laughs) (laughs) yeah well, what would you like to hear about that? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think maybe just for people to get a sense of, you know, the people of New Mexico and sort of this essence that you're pointing to, just to kind of mm. unpack that a little bit, what the what is in the lifeblood of the people in New Mexico there? Well, New Mexico, and in specifics, also northern New Mexico, probably more than southern New Mexico, but New Mexico, um, historically... New Mexico is this very, very rich place. It's been occupied by human beings of an incredible uh, panoply of sacred mentalities, culture, ways of doing things. I mean, it's really even difficult to begin. I mean, most people, when you read a a history of New Mexico, you know, oh, there were these uh, Anasazis, there were these people, and, and it's just so dinky, but I mean, it's immense. So when Europeans first came here, the first European to come here was not a European, but a black man from Cameroon. And he was sent ahead by other, you know, conquering Spanish, Spanish people who were also not Spanish representatives of the government. They were not Spaniards in little suits like in those days. These were all displaced characters who were trying to find a new way to live. And they were a bunch of badasses and they were doing a lot of bad things. But the people that came after them uh, as colonizers were mostly people who were Sephardic Jews. And people keep forgetting that, you know, the, the Jews and Arabs and Muslim Moors had all been, and Berbers had all been kicked out of Spain by Isabella. And so there was this uh, huge diaspora all over uh, the world uh, from Spain. Jewish people going to Macedonia, Turkey, Morocco. But a lot of them came to the Americas. And in New Mexico, for instance, like my neighbors here, they're passed on, God rest their soul. There's a, there's a guy named Benjamin Real, 
Well, that's a shortened form of Benjamin Israel, <laughs> which is slightly Jewish sounding. I don't know if you agree with me. And, uh, <laughs> and almost all these names are either Basque or Jewish. And so they became what are known as the crypto Jews, the Sephardic Jewish diaspora. And not only Jews, but other people as well. And they would come to these places. They would kind of try to dress themselves uh, culturally as Spanish um, Catholics and stuff. But they developed a culture alongside Pueblo Indians, alongside uh, Athabascans, with ups and downs, this, that, and the other. It's a long, long, long story. If you want to read about this, I have a couple of students who write a lot of good books about it. Anyway, the point is, is at one point, the, the, you know, just like the British, the British idea and the English and the Dutch idea was to make a lot of money on Indians, then get rid of them, take over the land, raise taxes, and you got America. But in New Mexico, where the Spanish and, and Guatemala and Mexico, the idea was to have fiefs. And it's just like in the medieval days, where a person would take over a certain area and all the people in that area would become their serfs. And then they would raise crops and then they would have a certain amount of tasación, tribute going back to Europe. And then the rest, the landlord or whoever that was would keep. Well, you know, this kind of, when you're that far away from the crown, you know, stuff starts breaking down and pretty soon it's not that way anymore. So you have an entire new culture being born, but the land tenantship, you might say, was given to people, you couldn't own land. Spanish people couldn't own land either. Nobody owned land, only the crown owned land. And so you would have what was known as a grant or a merced. And so these were doled out, of course, of course there was a lot of chicanery with that crown, but they were doled out. Now all the Indian tribes got their merced too. Instead of having a reservation, you got what was called 20 square leagues. And, and so, you know, the Pueblo of uh, Santa Clara and the Pueblo of San Juan, all these Pueblos around here, they got the reservation size mostly of what they have today came in, in the package with the Spaniards. And then individual Spanish families would get these big Mercedes and then they would have families under those families living on that land who would be part of this package. And any of this package of land ha had to have river bottom, had to have dry hills so you could get firewood, had to have mountain high timber so you could uh, go up there and graze your sheep in the summertime, etc. and so on. So they were kind of more ecosystem oriented and they weren't, you know, totally disastrous to the land as later things did. So when the Americans came in here, or I should say the, the changeover from Spain to Mexico, Mexico to America, the law was, you know, according to all the treaties was that these land grants would be honored. But the problem was nobody in the state spoke English. Nobody knew where the land registration office, which was very conveniently placed 700 miles away from New Mexico. New Mexico wasn't a state. So you had to register your land within a certain amount of time. So there were these shysters that would come in and have everybody sign their name to these uh, things. So, oh, we're going to go register your land for you so you can keep your, your Marseille, you can keep your land grant, you can keep your ownership I mean, the new American, you know, uh, rulership, if you will. And um, a lot of these guys, of course, all they did was getting um, signatures to say that they own the land. So all of the land that's now public land in northern New Mexico was stolen by these characters. And it was originally in the hands of the families who were grazing there. The Indians, the natives, they had a better luck. They didn't have good luck, but they had better luck with the Americans because the Americans <clears throat> were so much in love with the Pueblo Indians who were settled Indians as opposed to being nomadic that they gave them their rights right away, but they still had to fight for so much of it. 
There's a lot of stories about that. Whereas the Spanish American people, the, the Americans hated them. And they ostensibly still do really deep down. But um, so there was a big struggle all the way. When I was a little kid, I was, I was in the 1960s. Matter of fact, one of my, my favorite students, 85, he, just turned, he was the land-grant lawyer on behalf of all these people. He, and he was my trusted, uh, treasured student. I can't believe he signed up for my class. And as a Malcolm Ibra, he wrote some great books on this. And um, there was all these people all of a sudden found, and what happened is, and okay, I know I'm getting confused here, but look, when, <laughs> when, when the governor, the first territorial governor American was sent in, he set fire to all the documents to make sure that nobody could ever reclaim this land. But they found copies of them in Guadalajara in like 1964. <laughs> so some guy brought them up. And I'm telling you, it was a war zone here, man. <laughs> they had the, we had the uh, National Guard in every town. There were police everywhere. There were shootouts all over the place. And it was unbelievable, man. I grew up in this until 1970, I think, 1969. And so a lot of this land grant... Um, stuff they did give some land grants back to the spanish people for, for the most part it became blm land which is not the end of the road for everybody because you were still allowed if you got the grazing concession to use the land the natives were allowed to use other land all that sort of thing so this guy when he was coming along saying hey didn't anybody did your mama tell you you could cross this land mass belongs to us well it did belong to them and it was stolen from them and they still used it, and it was still theirs. And all they ever wanted was to say, to recognize all that history that went down there and for you to understand that. And natives were the same way. And so you, you hear all these people come to New Mexico, man, natives are really, you know, militant there. The Spanish people are like this. Let me tell you, New Mexicans are all little puppies, lick your face if you have respect. And so old, old Pite, that guy's name was Pite Maestas. He's a real guy. He's passed on now. And he always carried this big old gun, which I, <laughs> I didn't think he could lift it. You know, 44, 40, is two hands, you know, with a cap. <laughs> and uh, I remember he was such a good shot with it, though. He could hit a piece of barbed wire, a fence. And, you know, like if he didn't have a cutter with him, he'd just shoot it for each one of the wires to wow. open him up. And we had this old lady next to Miss Rivera. She used to always, have, she had the same gun gun. And she would shoot it in the air whenever the horses got on her, on her veranda. And we'd all look around and the whole village here would hit the ground. Because this lady was like 90 years old and winging this pistol. And boom, bang, pop, boom. But she was just telling everybody she was still there. She was still in charge, which she was. And the horses were on the veranda and they had to get somewhere else. Luckily, they weren't my horses. And it was fine with us, just part of the neighborhood, a normal New Mexico hello, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the guys coming from Connecticut, they can't deal with it, man. They made laws and made us basically illegal. But, you know, that's in the next book. So. Oh, okay. Okay, so that gives us, a, I mean, that gives us a nice bit of, I know there's like so much more you could say, but that gives us a little bit of nice context of the people and the his, history of New Mexico. And then there's these, these horses that you're, these stories yeah. center around that you're so in love with and they're just amazing souls. Now, uh, the long form that I picked out of the book of what you call these horses is Spanish Mesta Barb Pueblo Indian horses. Right. That's Can you right. just give our audience a little bit of a, you know, how do you do with these horses to let them know a bit, you know, like <laughs> well, I did make these a, horses? I did make a glossary. So you can look up Barb. The thing is Spaniards, 
Spanish uh, colonists, when they brought horses from Spain, they brought various and sundry types. And in Spain, what is now called a Spanish horse or an Andalusian horse is no relation to the horses that they brought originally. And the horses that they brought originally um, were just like the ones we got. And I'm looking at them right now. Matter of fact, the one that was in the barn fire, he's staring at me right through this window. Say, hey, what are you doing? Talking about me again? You, hey, give me a cut. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wants his royalties. <laughs> he's 39 years old, man. 39. Wow. He's 39. And, and old punk is still looking at me there. And then his wife is looking at me over from this window over here. Yeah, you'll read about her in the next book. So all his grandchildren are staring at me too. Oh. I got I got them in from the other ranch because the other place was getting ready to burn. So how many horses do you have there right now, Marty? Oh, we we'll never tell. We we'll never ah, tell. That's yeah. a that's a very superstitious thing. Indians never ah. say. They say, "Oh, not as many as I used to." We always say, "Okay, okay." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Less than sixty, more than thirty. You know, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we're very superstitious about our horses. You know, it comes from the old days when they used to steal them a lot. People, you know, so. These uh, little animals, they were very small, very elegant. They have a much shorter neck and a shorter back, a thicker neck. They don't look like modern horses. They're totally different. But um, they were the only horse that was around here. And as, as the native people became the herders for the Spaniards, they're the ones that raised these animals. But people have kind of forgot that. <laughs> they, they were Indians were the ones in charge of them. So when the Spaniards were, were, by the way, Spaniards were all evicted by the Mexican government. They were forced to leave. Everybody forgets that. Most of them, by the way, went to Missouri, Independence, where you can still find a lot of people with Spanish last names. Then, uh, you know, a lot of natives were the only ones to keep these horses going because as the Americans were coming in with their big draft horses and their big, you know, trucaners and these crazy thoroughbreds and all these things that were made for commerce. And the cowboys who just couldn't, the first cowboys that came in, American cowboys, they loved these little horses. I mean, Frank Doby wrote whole books on them in case you ever feel like reading them. They, they were totally in love with them. But around the World War I, they started being rounded up and sent, you know, and canned up to feed soldiers in the front in World War One, And then in World War II, that finished the job. So the only places there were any of the horses of this style left were on Indian reservations. And so there was this one old crazy guy from Wyoming that started gathering them up to keep them from disappearing. And with very, very mixed results because of all the people that were involved in it. So, which I won't go into, but... Um, the point is, is that when I was growing up, I didn't even know that the world was full of quarter horses. All we had was these little, these little, what they used to, white people called Indian ponies, but they weren't like runty or ratty or anything. They were exquisite. So when I came back from Guatemala, I went to go look for, I couldn't find any, man. You can read the book, you know, the whole story is in there, but they, um, they were so strong. I was actually banned from a couple of races because they were so strong. Said, we have to give you a big handicap because you can't lose. You know, we don't want you in this race. I said, well, man, come on. I just like running, you know, let's go, man. 40 miles, is, it's just right size, you know. And uh, <laughs> anyway. And there's, some so, great, there's some great stories about these yeah. races in the book. Yeah. Races and saddle. You couldn't find a saddle to fit them, man. <laughs> no saddle would fit this way. I had to start making saddles. So I learned how to make saddles as a result. I got, I got some old saddles from 1830s, 1840s, all beat up, you know, tore all the leather off on the trees and redid them. And they fit perfect. And I said, what the heck? Why? And so what, I actually went to a saddle makers and I said, look, guys, um, could you please make me some trees? 
to saddle trees that goes is the base of the saddles you know mm. and uh and they said well, that's impossible these trees this wouldn't fit any horse whatsoever this is insane you these no they fit my horse well you shouldn't ride horses that fit those you should ride horses that fit the saddles we make now so then we're supposed to breed the horses to fit the saddles and i thought that was a great metaphor for the present age you know we're all supposed to fit our head into a square computer you know instead of like have everything fit the way we are actually so these little horses they came in all colors. There were very, very few black and white paints. They came in every kind of gruya, every kind of ruan, every kind of roan. And they were just amazing, amazing, amazing. And their hooves were hard as hell. They have very, um, what you call short cannon bone, very long forearm. Modern horses are very long cannon bone, a short forearm. They have a very heavy neck. They have a big old throat latch that's like looks like a you know a frigate bird. <laughs> yeah, big old head. I couldn't even find a bridle to get on their head. I make my own bridle, which is less of a hassle, you know, because their eyes are so far set. They're like big owls, you know. <laughs> and, and their heads are so damn hard. I mean, you don't want to be underneath one when they lift it up; it kill you, you know. And without even trying. They got a lower a middle tail set, you know, not like one of these panty waist Arabians with their tail up there like a big flag. And uh, and if you get your hand underneath the tail, they can clamp your wrist and they don't need to let go. Man, it's just like a gorilla got hold of you, you know, so you got to watch out. And I could go on and on and on because I love them so much. But they're fast as the wind and they never get tired and they're dinky. <laughs> they're little tiny horses. I mean, a 14-hand barb is big, you know. I mean, quarter horse is 16 hands, 15 half, you know, so... They come in all color and they come in all styles. They can't eat grain. They eat only grass. They stay, they don't need, they have no dependency on <clears throat> real high protein. Just like a wild animal, you know, so. And really good teeth. Mm. Really hard, hard, hard teeth. You know. Hard bones. But most people, you know, since they stopped using horses in and uh, for going on roads and carrying people from place to place, most people didn't care about horses even then. These horses were the horses of freedom. These are the horses that kept the colonists from catching anybody. And this is the one that Custer and all those guys rounded up, you know, and they'd murder 800 of them a day whenever they could find them because they could not catch no Indians as long as they were riding these horses, you know. And it wasn't until the American army started riding them that they did catch natives and put them on the rest. So that's what George Crook, he finally advocated, you know, that's how he got Geronimo. So a lot of people forget these things, but the strange thing is that everybody's grandpa, right here, even where I live right now, everybody's grandpa and great-great-grandma, they rode these horses. And they're always coming over and they're always trying to sneak their mares into my stallion pen, you know, so I can get a breeding, you know. Because I said, where did you get these? Man, these are the same horses I grew up when I was a little kid. I said, man, why didn't you guys keep them? Well, uh, Americans said we were just little rat people and that we should be riding these big horses. Yeah, but look what happened, man. You know, three bales a day and feed that glumpus over there and he dies of colic anyway. You got to keep something small in your life, man. Small and beautiful. So it's very difficult to get across to modern people because mostly they're not, uh, you know, horses are for racing or for show or for look or for prancing around the park. They're not from getting from here to Grants, you know, without uh, having to drink water more than once. The, the transportation is gone. And then being out on the range, when places where a lot of people have horses, there ain't no range. I mean, in New Mexico, even though they stole all the land, a lot of it, there's only, I think, what is it? Is it 15, 20% is privately owned. Everything's public land. So you can, like me, if I go west here, well, let's just say east, 
San Francisco is, I can go probably 15 miles without hitting a fence or seeing another person if I don't want to see them. And then going west, it's a little dicier. I probably can go only nine miles. But if I go north, I can get all the way to Colorado without seeing a person if I want to. You know, and that's like, ooh, I get 60 miles. So, you know, there's still, you can still cruise, man. You can still go. You can still, these little horses are the one they want. But there are hardly any left because when the people start to try to save them, they try to make them look like quarter horses again. They start breeding them so that they look like what they were familiar with instead of what they actually were. So they killed them off again. So there's very few left. But anyway, I love them. I thought I'd write these horse books about them because my whole life been tied up riding them around. I don't just, you know, not just witch doctor, man. I'm <laughs> riding some ponies, man. <laughs> you know, and I'm too old now to really do all that crazy stuff. But I said, I did it, you know. So I said, I better just. Like I say to a lot of people, so you got to live full, man. That way you don't have to lie when you get old. You don't tell stories, man. You just tell what happened. <laughs> Can you tell us, you just, you know, you, you said it as a joke, but you, being a witch doctor, but, you know, you, you, you're, a, you're a healer. And one of the, and I think it's chapter one, uh, you're telling the story about, um, about Basenti's oh, yeah. wife's mother and, and the healing. And you, you basically sort of hint at the, the 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 view of the indigenous healer in terms of you're not just healing the acute symptoms of something the sickness but right. the whole circumstance around it and all the people yeah, involved true. and spirits involved can you oh, can you highlight that a little bit more for us well in that particular circumstance it was uh with the Dene people you know the Dene what they're calling nowadays it used to be called Navajo and uh, they're amazing amazing um, healing mind they have a thing they call hostra or hostra which essentially means everything i mean when you know you get modern people translate the word and they call it harmony which you know kind of makes you want to puke but the real word uh, hostra means everything living according to its nature so that it propagates everything else in other words the mountain lions are going to eat deer. They're not going to lay, the lamb is not going to lay down with the lion in this case. <laughs> the deer is running like hell <laughs> or hiding. And the lion is mostly starving and they eat a rabbit when he can get one. But everything living according to every plant, every arroyo, every cliff, every person. And so when hosro is a state of what they call health, health means everything is as it should be. And that's something that happens with inside a thing called Deneta, which means that the earth as body as the tribe itself. So I grew up with these people, you know, and I, I always loved that a lot. So I became a medicine man myself, but I, albeit in uh, another country, but very similar mentality, very, very, very similar. I mean, similar enough to, so we could concur with each other. So when I, there was this old lady, you know, I mean, I knew a lot of them, man, I tell you. And with Navajo people, with Dene people, women run the show. You see, they're matriarchal people and they don't, they descend from males, but they, they don't live in their, everybody who, where they live, lives with the female sides of the family. Like if a man and woman break up, the man leaves and goes back to his mama. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the lady don't leave me. You're gone. Bye. Okay. <laughs> so that's how things are run there. And so when the woman, uh, some of these old ladies, you know, they, I mean, this one old lady I write in about in there, Yabesi Lee, man, she rolled out of this truck on I-40, man. I mean, I roll out, I'd be dead, you know? And she's all bruised up and they dragged her over to my place. And she said, no, I don't want you to cure me. I don't want you to fix my bruises. 
I just want you to somehow make it so the thing that made it so I had to roll out of that truck in order to save the rest of my people because I became the sacrifice for something we're not doing right, that the rest of the things in nature all of a sudden like us again so this stops happening. That's their idea of, of getting a healing, all right? So the, the bears or the snakes, or, which are very, very large deities, and nobody messes with them, or the lightnings or the waters of this or the cliff of that is not insulted by our presence. And so the medicine man is, uh, with Navajos in the way, they have a huge panoply of uh, a great, great selection of ceremonies. They're all different forms and subforms in order to make that happen, which is based on the fact that there's a story and this story, everybody knows his stories. And inside that story, that story is ritualized so that your body as a human being is going through all the things that the hero or heroine is going through in this story. So and when you finally come out the other end, it's not so much that you're healed, but you're well. Whether you die or live is immaterial. What is material is that the world goes on and is better because you're in it or better and your people are better because you did what you had to do. And so that's called Hosro. And so she, these people will always come for me to reestablish Hosro. And then when my Hosro got out of whack, I would go to Vicente and he would, you know, whew, I mean, them now they got some heavy duty. I mean, you got to throw up a lot and do all kinds of stuff, but he would put me right again. And so we were, very, we were best friends while he was still alive, you know, and so we would help each other out. So that's, that's basically the idea is, is that the land is the, is the thing you got to learn to live with and that's your body. And you can't get well inside land unless everything's as it should be and what puts it right spiritually speaking is that every mountain every rock every plant has a whole government of deity that is not that they have to be placated but everything has to be going along in such a way that you're not just stealing from them or taking it in such a way that everything gets loaded out of whack for instance these people in the old days i mean there's still some i think believe this too when they would leave their their tribal region and going to what they call the white man land, they considered that going the same as going to Mars, going to another land. And when they will come back, invariably, they will have a ceremony done instantly. They won't like, you know, and they're very expensive, by the way, these ceremonies. They wouldn't like wait till they got sick. They said, I'm going to get sick because I've been exposed to something that's out of Hosro and it's put me out of Hosro because me as a big piece of land, my own body is all of a sudden no longer in, 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 uh, in Hosro, it has to be uh, made good again. So they will have what they call an enemy way uh, ceremony, which is really amazing because what it is is two different groups of people, they become ritually enemies and they just begin to sing night by night over four days. And eventually on the fourth day, they come together as a people and, and make friends again. So the land that was out of whack on the outside makes friends with the land that's in whack <laughs> and that's your body. And then you come out as a whole being again. So, um, that's more or less, you know, kind of what was going on there. And that I was uh, making allusion to that. I mean, we did a lot of things the morning in that book, but Navajos were very into horses. And uh, boy, they're really good, really good with horses and the young people, especially. And then you've got all kind of mixed blood horses now, but they can really ride, man. I tell you what, and those old ladies are not the least among them. Some of those girls are out there, oh, I'm tickle, tickle, tickle. <laughs> chase some sheep around. <laughs> you don't want to mess with those girls. <laughs> you got them on your side. Well, you know, Martin, that there's a there's a a quote from the book that I think is right on point as a continuation of what you're speaking about uh, in terms of our modern way of life and the way it's out of Holstra. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it's a, it's a bit of a longer quote, but if, if I can share it and feel free to interrupt Please. me at any time, if you got something no. you want to add. No, go but, for it. Okay. So this is, this is from uh, the chapter titled the horse raid. And just to give it a little, yeah, yeah. Oh, those poor people. I hope they don't get mad when they see themselves. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and everybody, just so you know, these are all true stories, true yeah, stories. Absolutely. And, and Martin always says they're not embellished. It's just this, it's yeah. Amazing how, how wild these stories are and magical. So anyways, Martin and, and this other guy are, are heading into uh, heading to Iowa from New Mexico to, to get a horse. It's like this modern day horse raid. Well, we're actually retrieving the horse. The horse was originally from New Mexico. It was an incredible, incredible horse. He wasn't from Iowa. He was from uh, by Valencia. So we were going to go bring him back. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. So as you're coming into this, this, as you said, like enemy territory or going out into the modern world where this things are out of, out of whack, this is what you write. Uh, you're saying there's there's very few legitimate hills in, in Nebraska and then into Iowa. And you say, instead, from the flatness of that region's once natural, life-rich, endless prairie, there now rose the infamous nightmare of shoreless seas of surveyed squares filled with uncreative zombie corn and soybeans, one size, one height, one type, punctuated by the deep sad smell of hundred acre feedlots every five miles where cattle cursed to being bulked up on the same enslaved corn and soybeans crowded beak to bottom in the misery of their days till packed in trains and trucks they were shipped to facilities where unceremoniously stunned to death skinned gutted hung frozen sliced and packaged they were shipped again to be dispersed into the bloodstreams of suburban America. This reality always startled a romantic New Mexican like me, who was still accustomed to plenty of room for every creature, open range cattle, home butchered meat, home milked goats, and every family and their horses grazing free, who saw this supposed agricultural miracle as nothing but an accursed living nightmare, a way of life no different than the strangled, crowded, unfeeling lives people led in their cubicles in cities, where like life in the feedlots and GMO cornfields, the people had lost the glory of what is meant to live lyrically, as if they couldn't change it, and thought that's just how it was supposed to be. The animals and plants they ate had no more lives than the people who ate them, At least that's the way it looked from where we camped. A lot of people in cities disagree, but that's just because they don't know any better. We couldn't blame their ignorance, especially when you look at the horrors the adoption of trashy city life has wreaked upon what used to be country life, where people with lots of land now live with just as limited an imagination. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's probably one sentence too. You know, I tell you what, <laughs> <laughs> you know, natives don't have no punctuation, man. You know, you just have to stop them. <laughs> they really, you know, there's a, a tribe called the Choctaws. And uh, when the Americans first came, they tried to get 
peace treaties written. And so a bunch of Choctaws decided they were going to get literate. So they did. And when they wrote, they wrote like these 90 page treatises on their ancestors and there was no periods. And the guys would say, you have to have a period or a comma. So they rewrote it and they had a comma after every word or sometimes three commas after every word and then a, um, a period after every other word. And so with these big long screens, it was so beautiful. I just love reading that stuff. Man. Yeah, well, I kind of come from the same tradition, I guess. But anyway, yeah, well, the mid middle America, you know, it's such a sad thing, you know, where the, that land used to be the most amazing place. I mean, I still have it romantically written in my soul from the people I grew up with, because they used to talk about hunting buffaloes out there, and our Pueblo used to go out in the plains, you know. And uh, I know a lot of natives from there too, you know, so. But, uh, you know, if you read on in that story, you hear about the Sandhill Cranes and how they're in the bottom, how they're the reincarnation of those people. And so what I was trying to get across, and as you read those chapters, is that the people that I was trying to get the horse to come home with us from were not really my enemy in the sense that I hated them, but they did hate me. And so it's really something that one has to learn how to bless those that hate you. And that's really what the whole book's about. If you read about, you know, mounted in church and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But I love the land. I mean, I love, you know, I love the scissor tail flycatcher, man. We don't have them here at our house, you know, out there in the plains. These big white, these beautiful white birds with big long tails is flying them. Oh, they're so amazing. Wow, so magical. And then the people that just, all this flat, you know, terrible uh, chemical, everything. I mean, gee whiz, it's unbelievable. Luckily, New Mexico is one of the poorest states in our nation and you know, we don't have it together, so we're still not quite as toxic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. There's a, there's another short quote, and I, this one I really, I have a very specific question for you. Um, in this, you're, you're talking to someone about, you know, uh, how to relate to a horse, and you're talking about the horse Ojo Sarco. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little Ojo, man. That was his real name, too. I'm going to get sued, I tell you. I know I am. <laughs> <laughs> I should have I'm knocking on wood for you here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, a place for me in Canada, man. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. welcome anytime. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so this is what you say, and then I'll, I'll tell you the question. You say, you're talking to someone, and you say, admire your horse. Give him power. Then he'll do anything for you. Horses like Sarko need admiration, not condescension. True admiration. But if you give him true admiration, he'll get more noble and more powerful. And unless you find even more courage in your love for him, you'll get even more afraid of his increased grace and presence. Mm -hmm. One thing that stood out is you spell the word admiration with a capital A. Mm-hmm. As though it's like a divine energy or a deity we embody in our love and awe for another life. It is. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? About the capitalization or about what you were saying? About the capitalization and what what that really means and how we how we apply that in our lives. Well, um, I have always been trying to get an oral capacity in a written words so that people, when they speak them, they can emphasize. In a similar way, in the written word as it is presented to us in these particular days, doesn't have a lot of 
a lot of things to do that with. So I use capitalization, you know, like every all the copy editors, they hate me, you know. <laughs> I cap, it just looks like German, you know, everything's capitalized. And I said, well, okay, I don't care, you know, look like whatever it wants to look like. But when things are important, then they have to be capitalized in my books. In Mayan language, they capitalize by having something that has no plural. Like for instance, if something has a plural, that's a, a, a subclass. If something has no plural, then that is that's the way you orally capitalize something. Like if you talk about the sun, it never you can never say there's more than one sun, uh, S-U-N. I mean, and you know, in the sky, you can't talk about that there's more than one water. Water is never capitalized. Is never not capitalized because it, everywhere you look is water, and it's all connected and belongs to one lady. So in my books, I do the same thing. I capitalize things that are admirable. <laughs> and so when it comes to these uh, different kinds of horses, I mean, especially this particular kinds of horses, the idea of admiration goes back to this thing of uh, grief and praise. Something has to be praised if it's praiseworthy. And if you don't praise it because it's not hip to praise it, or you don't admire it because it's not hip to admire it, then you're a criminal. That's the, the most for sure way to invent a rapist or, or any kind of criminal mind is to not have admiration for what's admirable. So every native where I grew up, when the sun comes up, we go admire the sun. And people say, oh, you worship it. We don't worship anything. We only feed things. Like if you come to my house, you're going to eat. And I'm, you're going to eat before I ask you a question, believe it or not. And before I talk you to death, I'm going to make you eat. So <laughs> you're going to get hospitality. And then you're you're going to be admired and people will admire and you know outsider they will say what is going on man all these people are talking about the greatness of my shoes and about the beauty of my bracelets and because that's what you do and if something is pe uh, peculiarly small and insignificant on the earth i remember when in what i got another book sometime you read it maybe where all the soldiers burned all the corn and there was no more corn seeds left it's an unlikely piece of kuchma kick and when they start sending GMO dent corn down there for the Indians to have, as a, it was this terrible tasting stuff for one thing. And it didn't look anything like what they were used to. And plus, it just was a very substandard kind of corn. But all those old ladies blew my mind. You know, I was all there, all judgmental about it. And they, they held up and they spoke to this corn for two hours, raising its nobility onto a throne that was way exactly to the place of the original corn they would have used for naming a baby in the ceremony. So the same goes for a person or an animal or a horse or a landscape, even if it's ravaged, even if it's gone to hell, if you know how to admire and see what is admirable in there and raise that, then that's what makes you a person too, because the ability to admire is what gives power to the thing you're admiring. And when you love something, you should not be mining it in order to get that thing's love or that person's love. You should be making it so everybody in the world can see uh, the beauty of what it is that you love so much. And so the point is, is that you're not doing it in order to say, ah, I got what I want, I'm gonna get what I want. And when you admire, and maybe you may lose it, you may not have it, but you will have made it so that being is big and, and full of delicious life. And horse, I mean, especially that horse, I know him very well, I mean, you couldn't get away with it. I mean, you, you did anything else and you, you're done. So admiration is something that's no longer looked upon as being very hip. And it's also being used like praise 
in order to get more work out of the people or just to be sort of, you know, very shallow. But so it takes the people who are not shallow and to have a people who are not shallow, oh, we got to do a little work, baby. Yeah, that's what I say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, admiration. I mean, that whole chapter is, is about, you know, a lady who couldn't uh, get her horse would be lame. And she didn't know he wasn't lame. He wasn't lame at all. He was just, his heart was so big, he couldn't, they were trying to diminish always. But this is a schizophrenic relationship of modern people who feel so inferior and so ashamed that they put on this great big superiority and then they end up squashing everything in order to make it so they feel tall because everything else is short instead of bringing everything up so you're short and the magnificentness of the God-given thing that's there is maintained by your ability to do that, which actually makes you big. So if you're able to admire something, even if you have no money, even if you have no status or standing or anybody's admiring, you're a very powerful being, you know, and that's uh, the basis of what that is uh, meant to, to convey, you know. You know, the, the sort of metaphor of this book, not even a metaphor, it's, a, it's right in your face, is all these horses that you're, you're bringing back to their indigenous soul. Uh, you know, and, and I guess the, the analogy is that this, this very same thing is our work as human beings on the planet today is to get back in touch with our in indigenous soul. Yeah, you bet. And, you know, the, our last conversation, we sort of ended on this topic. And I, I wrote down something you said towards the end of that conversation, I thought maybe, you know, as we're coming to a close today, we could sort of continue a bit along that theme. Um, you said, you can't ask the white guy to change. You got to make it yourself because the white guy is not a person. The real indigenous person that's in the white guy is the one that's got to emerge. And then we'll have people again. Right. So what's not clear about that, Russ? <laughs> well, no, it's all very clear. It's all very clear. And I guess, you just know, do it. <laughs> so. Uh. <laughs> yeah, so my like, uh, and that's like, you know, everything that you talk about, everything that you live is is all about that, from what I can gather. Yeah, really. yeah. Yeah. Now, I think I think for like, I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of a listener who might be living in a big city, <laughs> you know, and saying, okay, this is all very romantic and beautiful, Martine, but how do I, you know, your life sounds like this this blessed. Um, dream life that I, I don't even know how to begin to touch that. What do you say to those people, uh, you know? Well, uh, I write these books for them, actually. Um, what I say is, is that where you are, that life is there too. That's why I wrote these books, because these books did not happen, actually, in that rarefied of a, a situation. They're uh, right here in the U.S. of A., as they used to say. <laughs> and they're not that far from Santa Fe, 35 miles outside of Santa Fe, you know. And there was an I-40, an I-25 going right by our place, man, with all these mad people driving like maniacs. And yet all this stuff happened right there. And, and the next book, even more so. So what I say to the people is, is that it's not you can't get this because trying to get it is part of the problem is that's the whole mining mentality extraction mentality of civilization in other words if i can just get to mars elon musk 
you know, then we can, we don't care how many, how much of the sky we, we mess up with our stinking satellites, you know, so you can't see any stars. We're just going to jettison and go to another world and trash this one. No, no, no. Every piece of concrete is giving birth to some new world. You can see a, a, a flower growing in a crack inside the city. Learn about absolutely everything that you can about where you are. Don't try to leave where you are. Try to be where you are, man. It's like I, got, I used to work with gang kids and guys in prisons, you know. I said, look at where you are. Do you know where your drywall comes from in that little cubicle you live in? So, well, I try not to look at it at all. I want to leave. <laughs> so, good. Well, why don't you look into what it is? What is it made out of? Where's the limestone that's in it from? Where's the granite that's ground up to go in there? Where is that from? Where is this fiber from? Where is the fiberglass from? Where did it come from? Where is its ritual constituency? It comes from a very noble ancestry, all of it. The paper that's on the top, the glue that comes out of the petroleum and the tree saps. All of these things that you say, well, that's very scientific. If you're going to live in it, baby, and you're going to complain about me having a rarefied life, you got to know where you are. So you got to know about everything that you're surrounded by. Then you got to know what's underneath your feet. What is that concrete made of? And then under that concrete, who used to live there before you did? And who used to live there? Was it Russian immigrants? Were people from Slovakia? Were they Chinese? Were they African-American post-slaves? And then before that, and then before that, and then before that, and then before that, and don't just say, well, in those days, it was just the Indians. What Indians? And what were they doing? What were they growing? Their spirits are still in there. Every single layer that's underneath you, to your right, to your left, to the front, to the back, and the streets that you walk, the tunes that you make. For instance, you listen to some music on your iPod. I guess that's what you're using. <laughs> MP3, that's what it is. Yeah. Do you know what the synthesizer wash, what it descends from? The Stevie Wonder invented this, you know, and Prince invented that, and this guy invented this and that. That all comes from the military originally. And that before that, you have Leo Fender, you know, and uh, Epimonius, uh, Epiphonius, you know, Epimonius, who invented the Epiphone company, was from Sparta, who invented the American banjo, by the way, etc. So you got all this stuff is right there under your nose, on your radio, in your house, in your carpet. All the stuff that you're trying like hell to escape, to get away from, you should have to live inside it and know it's great grand indigenous origins before it was enslaved into these crazy little situations that you have. Don't take on your cell phone right away. If you want to find out all the components in there, you're really going to be going crazy, you know, with all the collodium and this, that, and the Congo and so on and so forth. But if you do, you're going to be amazed. And instead of getting bitter, get amazed, man. That's where the indigenous soul is. Because when you're a native person and you go inside the house of somebody or you go inside your own house, the food, you know where it came from. You know the seeds in those tomato plants, where they came from. The corn, where it came from, what it's for, who grew it, and what part of your body it comes from inside the great mythology of the whole thing. You know everybody, everything that you're surrounded by. Modern world, you can't possibly know everything. You can't possibly know everybody. You can't possibly know everything there is to know about the complication because the whole complication is made in order to escape the complication, which makes more complication. So the main thing to do is sit still, start digging on, take one thing, one little thing, 
and learn everything you can about it. And it will take you to an amazing universe of stuff that you never knew. And you said, well, what good is all me knowing all that stuff? What's good about it is the you that doesn't care about that is a useless you, but the you that does care about it is the indigenous soul. Because that one wants to know where it is. It wants to be in a house that matters. It wants to know where the door came from. It wants to know where this thing came from, where that came from. It's interested in all those things. And if it's not interested, then you're already dead. So don't worry about it. But if you want to live, hey, get interested. Because no matter where we are, even if we're victims of modern age, which is basically, you know, a slave culture, you know, you can be free inside that slave. You can make your chains clink to a beautiful song, man. All right. So there's no excuse. I've got that thing, you know, but people say, oh, you have a handmade life, Martin, and uh, you live in this rarefied thing. Hey, man, you come out here and wrestle my bull. (laughs) Give me a hand, man. You want want to schlep some manure, dude? You know, (laughs) you want to push back a forest fire? You know, you want to shoot the fence with a 44? Okay, it's fine with me, man. Give me a hand. But I had some hippies jump the fence the other day, sweet little guys from Carolina, and they wanted a special, uh, what do they call it? Uh, session with me because it's hard to get to be around me and somebody told me that i wouldn't mind if they visited by jumping my fence which was of course a local joke because they know they probably get shot but <laughs> so there's one lady she comes up and says hi i'm such a so i'm such a so my best friend just died i said oh that's terrible well she was signed up for being bullet kitchen and she already paid i said okay and i said well can i take her place i think get out of here you again she's not want to take this dead person's place and get the money so i would give and she wanted to jump the bureaucracy and not have to talk to jake and talk directly to me I said don't you have anything interesting to say you know so and when they were done their heads were all hanging and they were having to find out what their shoes were made out of and what their you know clothes were made out of and i said if you do that you're already be in bullets kitchen get out of here i gotta write a book you know, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny, you know, think so you're going to find the master. And when you find the master, you don't want to hear what he has to say. What? Ah, uh, yeah. No sense of humor whatsoever. You know, it's just like Pete Maestas, you know, said, hey, guys, come on over for coffee. I just wanted to say hi, man. You know, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's hard for people, man. It's a crazy thing. The civilization have told everybody they're advancing. But there's no progress if you're trashing, man. There's no way, you know. So you got to know who you are, where you are, where you're from. And all the grief of that, can't you can't allow that to destroy you. You got to allow that to make the uh, admiration for the magnificentness, one of the part of us and our ancestry that did what it had to do, made weird decisions in order to the fact that you're here. That all of the things that people have done and made and made a lot of bad decisions and stuff. But the fact is where everything comes from and what it's all about is amazing, even if you don't like it. I mean, it's still pretty amazing. And the more you know about that, the more masterful a liver you are. And the more masterful a liver you are, then that will be the palace. That masterfulness will be the palace where the indigenous soul can emerge and take a seat once in a while at the feast of the creations that you make from the beauty of what you discovered looking for those things I was talking about. Yeah, not to be sound like, you know, um, uh, evangelical preacher or something, but you know. <laughs> I get my hey, book over here, boom, boom. Preach on, preach on, Martin. Hey, everybody listening, just take a moment for an amen here. Amen, man. Amen. Yeah. I'm nothing, man, but I'm happy <laughs> being nothing in a good place, you know. I love it.
I love the world, man. I love the world. And I love the people. And I, I really uh, appreciate uh, you wanting to read my books and talk to me. That's a really, uh, really a gift to me, too. You know, it's nothing Our worse than, than being a little kid, you know, and you have a golden ball and you want to give it to somebody and nobody wants it. So it's pretty good. It's nice. Yeah. Martine, I've been excited about this talk. And I was excited every time I sat down to read The Wild Rose, which is the second in this, this three-volume series. And I'm even more excited just thinking about, you know, us getting to talk again about the third in this series. I think it's called, <laughs> it's called The Canyon Wren, right? The Canyon Wren, right. Yeah. The first, uh, the introduction, you're going to love it. And it just came back from the copy editor. So I'm going to look at it right now when we're done. But uh, I'm not going to tell you. No, I'm... I'll let you read it. You'll be laughing for a long time. I hope. I bet I will. I laughed out loud a lot in this one. So when do you have any idea roughly when that's going to be coming out? Well, technically by contract, it's supposed to be out next March. And, okay. um, but I'm doing the audio book on it beforehand. So just so it's out there, but yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. The audio book on the, what's it called? Mare and the Mouse. It'll be out like in about a week, two weeks. Wow. <laughs> We never had the technology to do it before. So now we have our own thing we can do. It. And but so when the Mary Mouse came out, we didn't make it. So, uh, but the Wild Rose has, a, has an audio book. And so the Mary Mouse now has one too. So just to let you know, just came that's yesterday. That's great. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Okay. And, and people can get the books, any of your books at Banyan Books. Uh, you can visit yeah. us in person at the corner of 4th and Dunbar in Vancouver, or, or you can uh, shop online at banyan.com. And uh, Martine, your website, I know there's two addresses. One is your name, martineprechtel.com or floweringmountain.com. Right, Both of those will get one. people to your website, right? That's the, that's the one. It's better than it used to be, they tell me. I don't know. I don't look at computers. So they say you can't push a button and buy a book, man. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not, but it probably is. Yeah. You know, me, I'm just out here with my horses. You know, the horse that was in the last story in the wild rose it was in that barn fire yeah know? he's right here he's still alive man yeah that's a so cool a crazy guy man old punk <laughs> and that story took place in the in what like 89 or 90 yeah mm -hmm. 89 yeah yeah that was something else man i couldn't believe that yeah now you read it you can dig it and then the next book i'll give us life no suffering will I have for you guys by next year. Yeah. I got another book coming up too. I mean, that the other book is more about what you were talking about when you're talking about Hosr and the, the doctoring and all that sort of stuff and the earth as the body. So that's probably going to be with NAB, but I don't know. I'm okay. still thinking about it. You got a working but, title for it? or? Uh, yeah, but I don't want to give it away. I've got uh -huh. too many of them stolen before I can get them out. So uh -huh. not that I don't yeah, trust yeah. you. I definitely trust you, man. I but, hear you. No, I get but it. I don't yeah, trust the people. <laughs> I'm yeah, not beating yeah. my ass this, man. You got to drink coffee with me first. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds just it. right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's coming out, though. It's coming out. God willing. And um, just to check this, uh, this horse publisher of mine to see if they behave themselves, I'll give them a book. But if they, if they just keep farming and just sell my books on the side, I'm going to go with the other guys, man. I'll tell you what. <laughs> nah, they're good kids. You know. North Star Press. Yes. Everything's got North. North Atlantic, North Star. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it's been a joy talking to you, Mr. Ross. 
likewise martin and and i want to just say a big thanks to jake too your 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 guy there for for helping get everything organized with emails Mm. and technology and scheduling and everything you have no idea what jake does here jake is a treasure he's a treasure from i don't know where he's an east coast guy he didn't know what he was getting into when he signed up to uh administrate bullets kitchen uh, secretarily i mean we brand cows we castrate the goats we push back forest fires. He fixes broken uh, hot water heaters. He digs up the plumbing. <laughs> he pushes all the buttons. All these disgruntled hippies who say, do you have organic shoelaces in Ohokali? Otherwise I can't come. <laughs> yeah. He feels it all with great demeanor. You know, <laughs> He's this uh, amazing guy. And he's got a new baby, you know, and they're just doing it. And- and he's a good sound engineer. I mean, God, you can't believe it. And he told me the other day, he says, you know, I was a I was a Jewish butcher, you know, and he's just a kid, you know. And I came to New Mexico and I I, I was one of your initiates or one of your things you did back east. And I was going to do this thing. I had no idea all the things there are that it takes to be a new Mexican. You know, <laughs> you have to know everything. You have to not fix fences and gates and and cars and this and that and uh, oh man he says i've become a well-rounded individual (laughs) 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 and so you have man (laughs) yeah he's a treasure man wow well big thanks to jake and since we're praising jake's i'll praise our podcast producer and who curates all the events for banyan books he does so much uh jake or jacob Steele. uh And uh, he he's the one who is responsible for pretty much every guest that Banyan gets and, and so much more. Um, and uh, he's a wonderful man. So big thanks to Jake, our Jake, Jacob Steele, too. Good Jakes. Yeah. All them Jewish guys, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm fighting that angel, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Take it easy. All blessings. But Yoshana just did a lahara, Rasmikichi, Meshkanatalibi, watch Jacob Steele here, Kohila, Kilabotzilla, Botsla, Bekolo, Nimilat, Kaslimamahon, Lavlochul, Matushi. Okay, then I'll go see if I can turn off this machine. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Bueno, bye bye. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound. Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.